One of the most unique and at the same time baffling things about Jesus is that although Jesus shows up as a religious leader, Jesus did not gravitate towards religious people, right? You read the Gospels and this just becomes abundantly clear. Jesus was sent from God, but he did not spend his time pursuing the people that his culture viewed as being the most godly. In fact, it was the people who were most uncomfortable with religion that were most comfortable with Jesus. People who were nothing like him liked him. And see, the challenge for me personally with that and the challenge for our church with that is is simply this, that the church is Jesus' body, which means that what was true of Jesus personally, that people who were nothing like him liked him and that people who did not necessarily agree with him were drawn to him even when they did not believe everything that he believed or understand everything that he said. This should be true of us collectively. Right? People should be drawn to those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are on mission with Jesus, and with what it is that Jesus is doing in our world. We should be the most likable people in our community, whether people agree with us or not. People should like us, even if they're not like us. Today we're beginning a brand new series called Stories from Jesus, because one of the things that you notice right away about Jesus is that Jesus was always telling stories, and when he told these stories, Jesus always used different adjectives to describe people, adjectives that were different than the people listening to the stories would use to describe themselves. And all of us have adjectives that we use to describe people. We say things like, those are the rich people, or those are the smart people. Those are the powerful people, or those are the regular people. Or maybe sometimes you say, like sometimes I say, right, those are not my people. You go to a party or an event, maybe you go to a wedding and you think to yourself, okay, those are not my people, right? You're polite with them and you're nice to them. But when you leave, you think, okay, I don't want to go fishing with them. I don't want to go out to eat with them, right? All of us have adjectives that we use to describe people, good people, bad people, nice people, mean people. That's not going to change and that's not going away. But one of the things that was unique about Jesus was the way that he categorized and prioritized people. And the way that we notice that is when we listen closely to the stories Jesus told and the adjectives that Jesus used to describe people. People who were nothing like Jesus were drawn to Jesus by the way that Jesus described them. For example, Luke actually tells us this in his gospel. In fact, this verse should make all of us who've been following Jesus for a long time just kind of pause and think for a moment. Jesus says this, that the tax collectors and the sinners, they were all gathering around to hear Jesus, right? Wherever Jesus went, people would just gather around to hear what Jesus had to say, right? And these were the adjectives that this culture used to describe certain people. We've talked about this before. They put tax collectors in a category of their own because they didn't want to offend the rest of the sinners. And so Luke tells us that the two worst groups of people, they're gathering around to hear what Jesus has to say, but they're not the only ones because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're there also, but they're complaining. Right, Jesus, you're supposed to be a religious leader, but you never ask us to go fishing. You, you never want to have us over for dinner. We know who you claim to be, Jesus, and yet all the wrong people are attracted to you. But see, what Jesus knew was that all these groups of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, as well as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, all of them, all of them had the wrong adjectives. All of them viewed people in a way that was not like the way their Heavenly Father viewed people. They thought in terms like good and bad, clean and unclean, men and women, rich and poor, black 
and white, Jew and Gentile, and all of these are adjectives that can be used to describe people. But unfortunately, in their culture, much like in our culture, those were the adjectives that had risen to the top. Those were the primary ways that people viewed other people in their community. And so Jesus decides that he's going to teach all these different groups of people at the exact same time about how our Heavenly Father views people. And so Jesus told them a series of stories. And these stories are some of the most famous and most well-known things that Jesus ever taught. We're going to look at three of them today. And what I want you to notice, not only today, but as we go throughout this series, is how these stories that Jesus tells, how Jesus prioritizes in groups people. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 15. He says, suppose that one of you has a hundred sheep and you, loses, you lose one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Right? And immediately all the men listening, they begin nodding their heads and think, they're thinking, okay, we don't know that we like you, but yes, that's true. Right? That is exactly what you do. And everybody in the audience, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, the teachers of the law and the sinners, all of them, all of them agreed with Jesus and said yes, right? I mean, think about it. This is probably the first time they've ever agreed with each other about anything. Yes, that is exactly what you do. If you lose one, you go and look for the one. And Jesus continues. And he says, and when you find it, right? He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep, right? And this is probably a bit of an exaggeration because you don't throw a party when you find a lost sheep. In fact, this probably made the people in the audience kind of chuckle. But when you find something valuable that's been lost, and this was Jesus' point, right? You're excited. In fact, it's kind of strange if you think about it because many times we're actually more excited about it after it was found than before it was lost. And Jesus' point is this because this is true of all of us. When we lose something of value, we focus on what's been lost even more than what's unlost, right? That's, that's what we do, isn't it? Right, guys, if, you, if your wife or if your fiance were to call you and say, hey, you're not going to believe this, but you know, I lost my engagement ring today. And if she were to continue by saying, but, but I don't want you to worry because I have my purse, right? That's not going to make you feel any better, is it? Right? The fact that, that you still have your purse does nothing emotionally if you lose your ring. Because when you lose something of value, the fact that you have a bunch of unlost stuff, that isn't helpful, is it? Right? I've told you this story before. Years ago, when, when Joe and Nathan were, were much younger in elementary school, we used to go geocaching together all the time. Right? And geocaching, if you don't know, it's kind of like a, a treasure hunt or a scavenger hunt you do with a, a GPS unit. And usually it's in the middle of the woods or out in some you know, middle of nowhere location someplace. And so Nathan and Joe and I are out in the woods. We're hunting for some tiny little treasure. And I remember Joe and I digging around in a pile of sticks or, or debris or something. And then me looking up and not seeing Nathan. And if you've ever temporarily misplaced a child, right, you know how, how this sense of panic, it just starts to build in you. you. You try to stay calm, right? And you call their name. It's like, hey, Nathan, hey, Nathan. But after four or five seconds when there is no response, Right? Your heart begins to pound. 
and calm, it just goes right out the window. And now it's that panic scream that only a parent can make. And so immediately I start backtracking as fast as I can, trying to catch a glimpse of, you know, Nathan through the trees. And here's the thing, I wasn't in that moment, I wasn't even thinking about Joe, right? I have no idea where he was. He could have been lost too, I didn't care. I mean, technically I guess he was lost because I didn't know where he was either. I was just looking for Nathan, right? And imagine the phone call. Right? Hey, hey, Autumn. Hey, hey, are you having a good day? Listen, I, good news, bad news kind of a thing. I, I just want to let you know. Um, I, I lost Nathan, but, you know, don't worry because I still have Joe. Right? That wouldn't be helpful, would it? No, why? Because when you lose something of great value, the fact that you have a bunch of unlost stuff is of no consequence, is it? And see, Jesus continues. And, and what he says next was offensive to everyone who was listening to him that day. He says, I tell you the, the truth, in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner, right? And, and the people in the audience are, are like, Jesus, are you, are you calling me a sinner? Over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. It's like, Jesus, wait a minute, are you saying that God is more interested in those people who I wouldn't even have in my house than me? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? And see, before all of them can leave, Jesus continues, but this time he chooses to speak to the women in the audience. And he says, okay, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one, which doesn't mean anything to us, but see, in Jesus' world, this was in fact a big deal. Because in Jesus' day, when a young woman had reached the age where she was ready to get married, her, her father would give her a dowry, a gift of, of 10 silver coins, and she would take those coins and, and fashion them into a headdress. And as strange as this may seem to us, these coins were a tangible sign of her value, her worth, both to her father, but also to her future husband. And so if she were to lose some of these coins, I mean, she wouldn't dare go out in public with some of them missing. It would be embarrassing to her. Right? and degrading for her family, for her to be seen publicly with anything less than her full worth, her full value on display. And so Jesus says, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Right, And all the women listening that day, they all start nodding their heads and all the fathers who have given or will give this very special gift to their daughters one day, they're all nodding their heads as well and they're thinking, yes, that's exactly what this woman would do. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin, right? And again, Jesus exaggerates a little bit. But see, once again, he's focusing us on the emotion of what happens when you lose something of value and how you feel when you find it. Because again, Jesus knows what we know. That when you lose something of great value, you go to great lengths to find it. Isn't it true? When, when we lose something of great value, we always go to great lengths to find it. Now, at this point, the people in, in Jesus' audience are wondering, okay, Jesus, you know, where in the world is this story going? I mean, and, and we kind of know, right? Because for many of us, we, we've heard these stories before. But these people are just listening to Jesus tell stories. 
And, and yeah, Jesus, we chase down the one sheep, and, and yeah, Jesus, we chase down the, the one coin, but, but Jesus, what's your point? And so he's got their interest, like he has ours. And so then Jesus tells them his most famous story. It's the story of a father and a rebellious son. You know the story. In fact, this father actually has two sons. And essentially, the younger son goes to his wealthy father and says to him, Dad, I know that when you die, I'm going to get half of everything. But, Dad, it just seems like you're going to never die. It just feels, Dad, like you're going to live forever. Because by the time you die, I'm, I'm going to be so old that it won't even matter that I get half of your stuff. Because, see, Dad, the truth is I've got plans now, so I want what's mine now. So, Dad, let's just pretend you're dead, right? Imagine hearing those words from your son or your daughter. And see, this is where we have to try to separate the familiarity of this story from the emotions found in these words. I mean, what would those words say about this father and son? They would tell you the very same thing that it told the people listening to Jesus' story. That this child of mine was long gone relationally, long before he left home. Right, This relationship is broken. Dad, you just won't die fast enough, so just pretend like you're dead and give me what's going to be mine. Now here's the amazing part of Jesus' story. This father wanted to reconnect with his son so badly that he chose the shortest route back. He knows the relationship is broken. This conversation is just the pinnacle of a bunch of previous conversations. He knows the son is gone. The son never takes his headphones off. He never talks at dinner time. This son is long gone. He is just physically present. And the father wants him back, not his body, the relationship. And so the father chooses the shortest distance back to his son and he funds his own son's departure. And what Jesus' audience heard when Jesus said this was that the father loved the son more than he loved his own reputation. And in that culture, this meant that father was a fool. Because they were thinking that what this father needs to do is to go back to Leviticus and find that verse that says to stone a rebellious child because this kid needs to be dealt with. But in the story, Jesus said, the father, he just goes along with the son's request. Fine, fine, let's pretend I'm dead. I'll liquidate everything and you can have your half now. And nobody said a word because the point was clear. This dad was willing to lose his son physically if it meant that there was even the smallest possibility of winning him relationally. You know the story. The father liquidates everything. The son packs up and awkwardly hugs his mom and dad goodbye and he takes off and time goes by and time goes by and eventually right you know the story in fact for some of you this is your story this is the story you hope is playing out with your son or your daughter your grandson or your granddaughter eventually the son is overwhelmed with the realization that he is disconnected eventually right not initially Eventually, the son is overwhelmed by the thought that he is lost and he is missing home, wondering if home is missing him. And then he comes to the conclusion 
that home isn't missing him. And so he thinks if I'm ever going to be able to go back, I'm going to have to go back as a servant and not as a son. Because he's gone through all the wealth. He's gone through all the money. He shamed his father publicly. And dads, imagine this. I mean, all the wealth this father took a lifetime, maybe multiple lifetimes to accumulate because maybe it was generational wealth. All the wealth it took lifetimes to accumulate, this son spent with nothing to show for it. But now he's missing home, wondering if home is missing him. And see, in Jesus' audience are people like us. Right? People who would say, I think I'm far from God. And I would like to not be far from God, but I don't know if God misses me. I, I don't know if there's a place for me. I don't know that I'll ever measure up. I don't know that I'll ever be as good as them. In fact, I don't even know if I want to be as good as them. And yeah, I am missing God, but is God, I mean, really missing me? And if we would have surveyed the people in Jesus' audience that day, Right? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would have said, God doesn't miss them. Right? He's disgusted by them. And if we would have asked the tax collectors and the sinners, they would have said, God's not missing us. God's probably disgusted by us. Right? You know the story. But the son, he takes a chance. He got up. And he went to his father and what happens next stupefied the people listening to Jesus' story that day because they did not see people the way that Jesus saw people. They did not think of people in the same terms and with the same adjectives that Jesus used to describe people. And Jesus' next words in this story are so powerful. In fact, these next words may be the reason why you're watching today. Jesus tells us that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with. And see, what we put in that blank all depends on the adjectives that you use to describe how we see people. Disgust, embarrassment, anger. But while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. And Jesus' audience gasped. It's like, compassion, Jesus, have you forgotten what happened in your own story? Because no father would feel compassion towards a son who treated him like that. And Jesus would have said, you're exactly right. If the father in the story shared our adjectives, and saw people the way that we see people. And this next part of the story really freaked them all out because Jesus said that this father, he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed the son. Now, why did the father wait for the son to return? I mean, why didn't the father just stop him before he left? Right? Why didn't he chase him down and throw his arms around him then and say, okay, stay, stay, stay. It was the same distance. It's the same two people. Right? But now the father is running towards the son and he throws his arms around the son. What's the difference? And see, this is Jesus' point and this impacts all of us, whether we're followers of Jesus or not. The father desired a relationship with the son, a connection with the son, not a location. What he wanted could only be found relationally. 
and not spatially. And when the father saw the opportunity for that connection to be made, he ran to the son and kissed him and the audience gasped. And do you know why they gasped? Because they did not understand Jesus' adjectives. They did not understand how Jesus saw people. In their minds, it was clean and dirty, acceptable, unacceptable, respectful and disrespectful. And the son failed on all of those accounts. But see, Jesus didn't see people that way. And he still doesn't see people that way. And if we are his body, then we must not see people that way. The father... The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. In other words, I did this on purpose, right? This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a mistake. I have sinned. I did all of this on purpose. And the father was like, I know. I know. But now you're back on purpose. And so the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet so that everyone knows that you are my son. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And then Jesus gives his audience and he gives us his adjectives. He lets us know this is how Jesus sees people. This is how he sees you and you and me. And there's lots of different ways to describe you, just like there's lots of different ways to describe me. But this is how your Savior or your potential Savior sees all of us. This son of mine was dead, and now he's alive. And it's like, okay, Jesus, dead and alive, really? Isn't that a little bit of an exaggeration? To which Jesus would say, okay, not to your heavenly father it isn't, because he was lost to him. He wasn't lost like we couldn't find him. I knew exactly where he was, but he was lost to me, and now he is found to me. He was disconnected, and now he's connected, and that is what I, the Heavenly Father says, celebrate. See, this is how your Savior and my Savior sees everybody in your neighborhood, everybody at work, everybody at your school, everybody at the grocery store, everybody at the hair salon, everyone driving a delivery truck, every single person that you will ever be eyeball to eyeball with, Jesus would say, there are a lot of ways I could describe people and those descriptions would even be true. But this is how I choose to view the world. This is what matters to me, Jesus says. There are people who are connected to their Heavenly Father, and there are people who are disconnected from their Heavenly Father. And my primary concern is not the connected. I know where they are, and I am grateful for my connection to them. My priority, my passion, the thing that brought me to earth in the first place was to reconnect the disconnected to their Heavenly Father. The reason Jesus spent so much time with the disconnected people is because they were disconnected. The reason Jesus was drawn to people who were far from God is because they were far from God and we are his body. And what was true about him should be true of us. Now here's why we're talking about this familiar story and why this is so important for us to talk about, especially today. As we are coming back together in person this weekend for this first time in more than three months. And see, you know this. Right? The gravitational pull of the local church, every church, this one, the one you grew up in, the one your parents went to, the gravitational pull of the local church is always towards the connected. It's always towards the people who know where to go and what to do and who to talk to. The gravitational pull is always towards the 99 and not the one. And see, that means, beginning with me, right? I'm not pointing my finger at anybody. 
beginning with me, all of us. All of us run the risk of misprioritizing our adjectives when it comes to how we see people. And before long, we see good people and bad people, conservative people and liberal people, young people and old people, my people and not my people. Before long, we just adopt all the cultural ways of thinking about and describing people just like everybody else. And meanwhile, our Heavenly Father says to all of us, that is not how I see the world. That is not how I divide the world. And see, my biggest concern for our church, especially right now, it isn't reopening, it's not money, it's not how to get our programs up and running. My biggest concern is that we would become so content with who's here that we would forget that the eyes of our Father are on the people who are not connected. And so as we begin to come back together, let's continue to show respect for the views and values of people who do not share our views and values. I mean, did you know the reason people like to be with Jesus, even though they were nothing like Jesus, wasn't because they shared his view of the world, right? But even so, they liked him anyway. And the truth is all of us have friends whom we don't align with 100% in terms of our views and values, and yet we like them, right? We can be like that. That's what we're called to be. Let's continue to give people permission to explore faith before we expect them to believe. Or the way that we say it, to belong, before we expect them to become. And let's continue to let people to ask their questions and share their doubts and their fears and to wonder out loud and hopefully, hopefully, something about being with us, about being with you, something about their kids being with your kids would bring them to the place where they would be open to hearing about a God who loves them so much that he's invited them to call him Father. And let's continue to do as you've done so amazingly well over these past incredibly stressful 15 weeks to love people, to love our community, and to raise the reputation of the church in our community. Let's take our cue from our Father in heaven who is always looking for the disconnected. Let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, as we hear these very familiar words, Father, we see your heart. We see the heart of a Heavenly Father who desperately wants to search and to find and to wrap his arms around the disconnected child and to bring them back home. And, and Father, that disconnected child at, at times in my life has been me. In times in our lives, it's been all of us. And Father, it's so easy for us to forget what it feels like to be lost. And Father, it's so easy to forget what you feel as a parent when you so desperately just want to wrap your arms around a child and hug them and hold them and welcome them back home and to tell them that they are wanted and valuable and loved. And so Father, I pray that every single one of us, that we would be your arms that we would be the ones searching for and chasing down and wrapping our arms around every single person that we can find to let them know that they are loved by you and by us, that they have a place where they can belong, that they will have the opportunity to hear about a God who loves them, and that we will continue to love people in your name, Jesus, the way that you have loved every single one of us individually and personally. Jesus, let us always be a place that celebrates 
when the disconnected have become connected, when the lost have become found. And Father, let us continue to celebrate what it is that you celebrate. People coming into a relationship with you and understanding that you truly are the Heavenly Father who loves them so much that he gave his own son to die for us and for everyone. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. Amen.